This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Today's podcast comes from the Probabilities Archive and was digitized, remastered, and edited in May 2023. This interview hasn't been heard in over 30 years and has never been heard in its entirety. Robert Anton Wilson, who was born in 1932 and died in 2007, had a remarkable career, starting as a writer of comic science fiction based on historical stories of conspiracy His work soon turned in the direction of physics, psychology, and futurism, and he described himself as an agnostic mystic. In the religion or philosophy known as Discordianism, he is considered both pope and saint. A journalist in his early career, he co-edited the Playboy magazine Forum and covered the work of both Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, later known as Ramdas. Most of his best works were written in the 1970s and 1980s, though he continued to write nonfiction into the 21st century. This interview was recorded in February 1983 and came after the success of the paranoid science fiction masterpiece Illuminatus, co-written with Robert Shea, and the now cult classic book The Cosmic Trigger. All the works he planned to publish at the end of the interview were published within the next couple of years. The interview was recorded near the house he was renting in the Santa Cruz Mountains on a rainy day inside the confines of a 1982 Honda Accord in February 1983. Most of the noise of the rain pounding on the roof has been removed, but you will hear it here and there. Here with me, Robert Anton Wilson co-author of the Illuminati Trilogy, Cosmic Trigger, Illuminati Papers, author of the Schrodinger's Cat Trilogy, Mass of the Illuminati, and you have two new books? Uh, The latest book is Prometheus Rising by Falcon Press, and I got a new novel coming out from uh, Blue Jay Press called The Earth Will Shake, a historical novel set in Naples in the 18th century. You uh, have developed an interesting reputation for writing these extended trilogies involving the same characters and uh, the strange cult of the Illuminati. Where does that come from? There have been several groups in history who call themselves the Illuminati, but the one that has inspired the most paranoia was the Illuminati of Bavaria in the 18th century, who are a secret society, very much like Pei Due in Italy recently. They were a secret society which infiltrated masonry became a secret society within a secret society and uh, set out to revolutionize Europe. And all the objective evidence, as far as I can see, indicates they were not very successful. But uh, there has been, ever since uh, the the French Revolution, there has been a certain uh, school of right-wing historians who believe the Illuminati were successful and that everything that's happened in the last 200 years has been due to their machinations. I find that a perfectly hilarious theory of history, and yet it is useful to me as a writer to create a framework for bizarre parables and and, uh, science fiction uh, alternate realities, ways of getting readers out of uh, our conventional ways of looking at things. The Illuminati 
Conspiracy is such a bizarre conspiracy that if you start treating it as if it were true, everything else gets thrown into question. Like how much of official science can we believe? Could all that be part of the Illuminati conspiracy to mislead us? Did World War II really happen, or did, did they just uh, re-edit the newsreels of World War I? <laughs> How did how did the book, the first trilogy come about? You wrote it with Robert Shea, right? Yes, that came about because we were both uh, writing for various underground publications, and we had begun with a few other friends uh, in other parts of the country. We had begun putting references to the Illuminati into things we were getting published just as a kind of running joke on the people who actually believed in the Illuminati. We thought we'd give them more evidence they could point to. So we would put things on mastheads of underground newspapers saying a publication of the Bavarian Illuminati, knowing that some people were just paranoid and naive enough to believe it and had to cut it out and show it as evidence to other people. And we signed articles, Adam Weishaupt the Ninth, who might be the current descendant of the Adam Weishaupt, the founder of the Illuminati. And as we went along with this game, uh, we realized we had built up our own uh, little universe of mythology, and it seemed like a good uh, theme for a novel. Now, I understand that the original Illuminati trilogy was something like three times as long as this, that what got actually published. Is that true? No, it, uh, it was considerably longer than what got published, but not that much longer. The, uh, the manuscript pages uh, was about uh, 1,400 manuscript pages, and we cut about 500, so it got cut from about 1,400 pages to about 900. That was because Dell didn't care to invest uh, in that much paper. They weren't sure that, that sure it was going to be a success, so they wanted a shorter book that would be less of a... And then they divided it up into three volumes to spread the risk a little further. Now, at last, after eight years, they have enough faith in it that it's out in a one-volume edition. Who was the editor uh, over at Dell that you worked with on that? Well, actually, there were five editors. Dell was so uncertain about the project that it took five editors in a row fighting to get the book published before Dell finally published it. It seems the editors all uh, uh, liked it very much, but the people who run Dell thought it was so weird that they didn't want to invest their money in it, even though they had signed a contract for it. So it took uh, five editors and uh, four years before the book finally got published. Was Frankel the editor when it did? Yes, uh, Jim Frankel was the editor who finally pushed it through. But I, I, I'm grateful to him for that, but I don't think he could have done it alone. I think it was the four editors before him created the momentum, the cumulative effect. Was there any influence of Thomas Pynchon in your work, in that work? Because it reminded me a lot of Gravity's Rainbow. There was only a slight uh, Pynchon influence. Uh, what happened was neither Shane nor I had read any Pynchon until Illuminatus was almost finished. And then we both read The Crying of Lat uh, 49, and I also uh, rushed out and read V. And at that point, Gravity's Rainbow wasn't out. After Illuminatus was finished, Gravity's Rainbow was published, and we were both astonished to find that there were even more. It's just uh, it was partly coincidence and partly uh, Pynchon seems to have turned on at the same time we did to this yeah. particular mythology, which, we, as I keep saying, we did not create all of it. A great deal of it is widely believed by uh, certain people. Who, uh, there, there's a, an incredible amount of literature about the Illuminati conspiracy by people who really believe in it. Who is Hagbard Chalene? 
He's uh, the great-grandnephew of Tarzan. Uh, uh, very few readers are aware of that, but if you follow all the hints uh, in my books, and not just Illuminatus, but the books I've written since then, if you follow all the hints and tie them in with the genealogy uh, created by Edgar Rice Burroughs, and even more the genealogy created by Philip Jose Farmer, which shows how Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan are related, yeah. you will be able to place uh, all of my major characters within that family tree. They're all related to one another, and they're all related to Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes. Where's Simon Moon fit in? Well, Simon Moon is part of uh, the Irish uh, uh, branch of that family. Your first published novel, or...? That was my first published novel, but not my first published book. And the time it took to get Illuminatus published, I had three nonfiction books uh, published uh, that I wrote after Illuminatus. They were all written, accepted, published, and distributed uh, in the interlude it took to get Illuminatus into print. <laughs> uh, were you beginning to go and delve into the investigations? I guess you were, that have, that have since brought you to an almost cult status, I guess. Oh, yes. Well, that's, that started uh, even before I started writing Illuminatus. I was uh, I was interested in the role of secret societies in history as well as the paranoias about secret societies. And then I got interested in uh, secret uh, occult lodges, both because of their political influence and because I gradually began to suspect that they did have real secrets, some of them that uh, there are techniques that have come down through the centuries that are very much like uh, current thinking in the more radical branches of psychology and sociology. Yeah. I don't think occult orders are all a bunch of dingbats. Uh, most of them are. But some of them do know a great deal about how to alter consciousness and increase uh, brain power. Had you uh, known Timothy Leary at that time? I've known Timothy off and on since since 1964. That was before you were a playboy. Uh, yes, I, I interviewed Tim. I met Tim uh, because I wanted to, but I had to have a rationale, so I got an assignment to do an interview with him for a magazine called Fact, which rejected the interview, and I sold it to another magazine called The Realist, but that's how I got to meet Tim originally. <laughs> I guess you started picking up on his more recent ideas when they came out, but um, were you following the various the developments of his brain? <laughs> well, I read, I read the interpersonal diagnosis of personality back around 60, uh, I, I don't know, before I met uh, Tim anyway. Yeah. And the interpersonal diagnosis made a tremendous impact on me. I, I've been interested in psychology all my life, and I finally got a PhD in it from an alternative university here in... California called Hawthorne and uh, I'm interested in different uh, schools of psychology and how they relate to one another and one of the things about Tim's work that has always fascinated me is that he's so uh, encyclopedic his formulations always include about 20 different schools of psychology and one new system of language that ties them all together I think Tim is one of the great masters of metaphor and so I find Tim's formulations uh, enable me to translate from Freud into Jung and from both of them into behaviorism and from that into sociobiology and then relate it all to quantum physics. And I think Tim is the great unacknowledged genius of uh, our time because he's been so controversial politically. Most people don't realize the profundity of his scientific work. They just don't bother reading it. They just know him as, as he is presented by the media, which is a funny 
but somewhat sinister a character who did too much drugs and became uh, crazy in a in an amusing way. There's a lot more to Timothy Leary than that vulgar image. Now, the eight circuits of the human nervous system, that's a model that Tim created while he was uh, being supported by the people of California. Uh, Tim has always uh, always said that he's grateful to the state of California for giving him uh, those years of free uh, uh, food and, and lodging in which he could meditate and produce. Uh, he produced about five books while he was a guest of the state. And those books have been published gradually since he got out of prison one after another. They, they were all written in prison, all of the books on the circuit theory of the nervous system. And I find that the most valuable uh, set of, uh, the most valuable model around for discussing consciousness, in that it is so structured that it includes all previous psychology just put into a more up-to-date terminology. And with Leary's system, you can easily see uh, what parts of uh, Freud make sense in terms of modern neurology and what parts of Jung fit in with current genetic theory and so on. I think it's a marvelously all-inclusive theory, although I don't think it's the last word. Okay. I agree emphatically with Tim himself, who says that in 15 years it will be obsolete and there'll be a better system of psychology. But it's the best right now, in my opinion. If somebody were going to read just one, the book that talks most about it, what would you recommend? Either by you or him or someone else? Very immodestly, I'd right. recommend my book, Prometheus Rising. And if that sounds too narcissistic, I'll quote Tim himself as saying that I sometimes explain his theories better than he does. <laughs> Let's go all the way back. Um, where do you first start writing? Well, I started. Uh, I first started writing when I was in grammar school. I was writing comic strips and circulating them to the other kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. And so you can see, I had the urge to uh, artistic expression very young. Where was that? I was in Brooklyn, New York, and there came a point at which I discovered there were books made up entirely of words without pictures. And I thought, hey, that's a lot easier. If I don't have to draw the pictures and only have to write the words, it makes it easier. And that's how I. I became a writer <laughs> when I realized I didn't have to be a cartoonist. Did you do just freelance articles for quite a while? Yes, for a long time. I was. Uh, I, I wrote a lot of short stories which I couldn't get published, probably because they weren't very good. And uh, then I started selling articles, and gradually over the years, I sold so many articles that I just gave up writing fiction. And then there came a point in my late 30s when I suddenly started writing fiction again. And since then, I have been uh, uh, sort of going through cycles where I write one nonfiction book and then another novel and then another nonfiction book and then another novel. And I recently bro broke out of that cycle by writing a play, uh, which is called Wilhelm Reich in Hell. And uh, a couple of theaters in, uh, in London have expressed interest in it, and one in Washington. I don't know yet where it's going to be produced first. Well, after the Illuminati trilogy came out, you came out with a book titled The Cosmic Trigger, The Final Secret of the Illuminati, which was not so much about the Illuminati as about Robert Anton Wilson. And it was published by Andor Press and eventually became successful enough so that it was picked up by, by Bantam, was it? The Pocket Books. By Pocket Books. Is there any story behind how that happened? I'm not in particular. The only story about that is that Endor owes me thousands of dollars of royalties, which I don't expect ever to collect because they filed bankruptcy now. But yeah. uh, I, I'm not particularly bitter. I mean, that's, we're living on a primitive planet, and one expects 
uh, such things, but uh, most people have no idea how often writers get screwed that way, so I mention it just to enlighten the general public. A cosmic Trigger was, uh, for myself and for a number of people, was a pr pretty remarkable book um, in that it, it elucidated a lot of things that had been on our minds. Plus, um, you dealt with your, your daughter's death on Telegraph Avenue, which I remember very, very... Uh, we're not going to talk about no, that. Not. Edit this out. Uh, I don't talk about that. Okay, I'm sorry. It's too painful. Okay. That's okay. I, you know, don't feel guilty, but I'm just not talking about it. Okay. Well, getting back to the, the book. The book itself was uh, a remarkable experience for a number of people. And, in fact, we were hoping for a follow-up of similar kind, but it took you, what, nearly 10 years to write another non-fiction book that was uh, more, I would guess, more of a, rather than a series of articles, but an actual book. And I assume that's what Prometheus Rising is. I haven't read it. I haven't seen well, it. Well, actually, the books that seem like collections of articles aren't just that. Yeah. Where I did collections of articles, most of those books were new material yeah. anyway, because they were experiments in nonlinear structure. The Illuminati Papers does have a great deal more uh, unity than appears on the surface. It's made to look uh, yeah. discontinuous because yeah. I'm trying to show different aspects of the same thing from different angles. And I did the same with right where you are sitting now. Uh, yeah. At least half of that was all new material, never before published. My idea is that when you do an anthology of your early work, it's a new job. And so I put it together to form every one of uh, to form a new structure. Every one of my books is an attempt to do something I've never done before. Uh, that's why it uh, frequently uh, takes me a while to sell a book because publishers like things that have been done before, and they don't like it if you keep doing something new. But I had just have this. I just unfortunately am cursed with uh, a drive uh, to do something creative all the time. Well, which brings to Schrodinger's cat, which in about a billion different directions and involves most of the characters in sex changes and different realities. So actually, it comes from the, the most uh, orthodox man in modern physics, John Archibald Wheeler. He is so mainstream that uh, a lot of young physicists define themselves as uh, the opposition to Wheeler's orthodoxy. And yet part of Wheeler's orthodoxy is that uh, the universe uh, is uh, created by the participation of those who participate. That's his interpretation of quantum mechanics. And he also co-authored uh, the parallel universe uh, theory, known as the Everett Wheeler-Graham model, which is accepted by increasing numbers of young physicists. I was quite astonished and delighted when New Scientist magazine uh, said that Schrodinger's Cat was the most scientific of all science fiction novels, because most people think it's the craziest thing I ever wrote, but it really is an attempt to present the world as the world looks from the viewpoint of modern quantum mechanics. And if it seems crazy uh, to a lot of readers, that's because quantum mechanics very powerfully suggests, uh, very powerfully insists that common sense does not describe the universe adequately. We have a choice of extravagant models, all of them contradictory to common sense, and physicists are arguing over which of these models is better. And the parallel universe model is one of the more plausible ones. The others are even weirder than that. 
And if there are parallel universes, if every quantum uh, leap creates two opposite universes in which uh, things happen both ways, then uh, there are, as Carl Sagan would say, billions and billions of universes in which I'm female, along with billions and billions of universes in which I'm still male, but a different type of male. And then, of course, there are billions and billions of universes in which I don't exist at all. This is an old science fiction idea that goes back to Sidewise in Time, insofar as I know, by Murray Leinster. I don't know how far. I've never been able to trace how far back it goes, but it definitely existed in science fiction before it existed in science. That's right. one of the fascinating things about it. Certainly, H. Beam Piper's Paratime series dealt with it, and... Um I guess the Wheels I, of F by L. Sprague de Camp right. was the first place I encountered well, it. Well, I know that Leinster's was, I think, 1930 or 31, which which probably puts it all the way back at the beginning. But, mm -hmm. you know, for all I know, it's somewhere in the Lensman series, Doc Smith invented it. We don't know. Well, I've heard from physicists that whenever Wheeler and Graham published the multiple universe theory, they weren't serious about it. They published it just to show, just to highlight the fact that there was this terrible mathematical mystery at the heart of quantum uh, mechanics. Yeah. And they published it to provoke other physicists into thinking about this. And uh, what's happened is in the 20 or 30 years since they published they published it back in the 50s. It's 30 years now. In that time, a new generation of physicists has grown up, many of whom think that the parallel universe model is less uh, bizarre than the alternatives. And so there are quite a few of them really seriously uh, urge the par parallel uh, universe model. Bryce DeWitt has written a whole book about it in which he defends it on the grounds that it's less metaphysical than any of the other theories. <laughs> and uh, Paul Davies, the English physicist, yeah. has written a, two books on it in which he argues that uh, the only choice, uh, if we reject the parallel universe uh, model, the only way to explain why this universe is so orderly and so hospitable to humanity is that we've got to go back to uh, metaphysics and accept that there is a guiding intelligence in the universe, that is to say, God. So the parallel universe is definitely uh, gaining in popularity with uh, physicists, as bizarre as it sounds. Do you buy it, or, or do you just kind of use it as a hypothesis here? I personally find it too extravagant to take too seriously, and yet I do note that people who know physics better than me are increasingly taking it seriously. How about the relation of consciousness to uh, the, the existence of the universe itself, which seems to be the latest in physics, too? Well, that's one way of escaping from the parallel universe model, is uh, by uh, assuming that uh, the parallel universe model arises from the fact that there's no way of explaining why the state vector in the Schrodinger equation collapses the way it does. And so the parallel universe model says it doesn't collapse. Uh, everything that can happen to the state vector does happen to it. So we've got all these parallel universes. One of the ways of getting out of that is to think of non-local hidden variables. And as David Bohm pointed out as early as 1952, uh, any non-local hidden variables that can account for the uh, experiments would have to be a strikingly like a form of consciousness. And uh, uh, Evan Harris Walker has since then written several papers arguing that uh, nothing else but consciousness can be the hidden variable that would uh, fit into the quantum theory to explain things. 
Uh, Bohm's latest writings say that the, the realm of the hidden variables is both mental and material. But whichever way you want to formulate it, that path does lead you to something very much like pantheism. That everything is alive and conscious and making decisions. It certainly destroys the idea of the universe as this uh, kind of clock that sort of, I guess, works right, but not quite. Uh, the idea of the universe as a dead machine just yeah. does not fit in with that interpretation of quantum mechanics at all. The universe, according to that interpretation, yeah. is either conscious or, to use a cute word Bohm coined recently, mind-like. That's not saying it is a mind, but that it's mind-like. It has qualities similar to a mind. Or that there are infinite realities, which is which boggles the mind. Well, that's the way of avoiding. That's one of the ways yeah. of avoiding yeah, that right. conclusion is to say that the state vector doesn't collapse at all. So there are infinite realities. Right. In other words, it's a guiding consciousness, or things are a little bit out of hand. I mean, <laughs> it's like third, another way. Another way is the non-Aristotelian way of von Neumann, which is that the universe just can't be described in uh, yes and no logic. You just can't describe it by saying this is true and this is false. It's more complicated than that. It requires three values. As Finkelstein, uh, the leading ex uh, exponent of uh, von Neumann's uh, theory, the way he puts it is that the universe contains yes, no, and maybe. Now, for a lot of people, that's even more bizarre than the universe is conscious or that there are infinite universes, <laughs> but that's another way of explaining the data. All of the ways of explaining quantum data are shocking. That's what's so fascinating about quantum mechanics. No matter which way you interpret it, you find it will not coincide with common sense at all. Our traditional ideas about the universe just are not adequate. Before moving on to your new stuff, you also came out with Masks of the Illuminati, which is kind of a strange parable involving Einstein, Aleister Crowley, and James Joyce. How did that come about? Well, it's uh, one of my uh, ideas uh, is that uh, everything is related to everything, and I, I don't like the compartmentalization of knowledge. And I wanted to show in that book, in the form of an entertaining melodrama, uh, I wanted to show that the principle of relativity was discovered three times in three different fields simultaneously. So Einstein is there as the man who discovered physical relativity, Joyce is there as the one who first incorporated relativity into literature by writing a novel from 18 different viewpoints instead of from one view. Well, before Joyce, every novel came from one viewpoint. And in Ulysses, Joyce told a novel from 18 different viewpoints. And Crowley is there as the one who introduced relativity into uh, the occult and mystical traditions. And so I, I'm showing three different aspects of relativity in one book. And the book changes style, just as Joyce's books did, to further illustrate relativity, that there's no one style that exactly captures what experience is really like. You gotta, if you change the styles, you see different aspects of the experience the characters are going through. Your editor on that and on the Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's Cat books were all, uh, was all Dave Hartwell, right? That's right, yes. Yeah. And now your new, your new books, you've written a historical novel. Uh, the Earth Will Shake. Well, that's more about the history of the, that goes back into earlier history of the Chilene and Babcock families who I've been tracing through my other novels. This goes further back and they're, they're both related to the Greystokes from whom Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes are descended. I mean, if one is in the business of creating mythology, one right. might as well link it on to other mythologies. 
and bring it all together. And uh, this other book, uh, Prometheus Rising. That is an attempt uh, to provide a handbook uh, showing people how to uh, change their um, uh, reality tunnels, uh, get from one reality tunnel to another. I, I think uh, we've reached the point where most people are vaguely aware that uh, we all do have our own reality tunnels. None of us perceive reality exactly like anybody else. And our reality tunnels tend to be limiting and even intellectually crippling if, if we can't get out of them. And so Prometheus uh, Rising is a uh, handbook on how to escape from one reality tunnel and, exp and explore dozens of alternative reality tunnels. Well, that's by Falcon Press of Phoenix, Arizona. What do you have in the works uh, coming up? Well, uh, currently I'm working on another novel called The Widow's Son, which is a sequel to The Earth Will Shake and takes my... Uh, my characters into the time of the French Revolution and uh, the Illuminati, the original Illuminati. Bring in Weishaupt and all. Oh, yes. All right. And uh, I'm also working on a book called The New Inquisition, which is a uh, polemic against uh, the fundamentalists of uh, the scientific world, those who uh, are stuck in the paradigms of uh, the 1950s and have been busy writing uh, denunciations of all the important, what I feel are all the important discoveries since about 1960. Uh, I mean, people like Carl Sagan and Martin Gardner and the yeah. incredible Randy and that whole crowd of uh, true believers who call themselves skeptics. Uh, from my point of view, they're all true believers because they have an absolutely dogmatic faith in uh, reality tunnels of the 1950s. And beyond that, do you have any... Yes, I've also started another book, which is the least commercial of anything I've ever done. Yeah. So I'm going very slowly with that in between more commercial or would-be commercial projects. This is called Coincidence, and it's a book uh, relating uh, E. Jing to Finnegan's Wake and both of them to quantum mechanics. I haven't even showed it to my agent yet because it seems so esoteric, and yet and still Goydell Escher Bach was pretty esoteric, and that reached a mass audience. Yeah. So maybe that will be a precedent which will give some publisher the courage to publish this thing. You, you just got back from Ireland. Uh, and I'm going back to Ireland. Uh, Is that where you live now? That's or? where I live now, yes. Well, in, in Dublin. Near Howth Castle and environs? Yes, I live right across Dublin Bay from Howth Castle. Uh-huh. <laughs> Where's Even Adams? Never mind. <laughs> Even Adams is down on Merchant's Quay. That's uh, toward the middle of Dublin. Uh -huh. uh, you're asking about the first sentence of Finnegan's Wake. Right, the yeah. first sentence of Finnegan's Wake takes you uh, through, uh, all the way through Dublin in a rapid rush. How do you feel about, uh, say, living there as opposed to California, for example? Well, I, uh, I like it or I wouldn't be there. I also like uh, having the opportunity to... Uh, come back to California occasionally. I'm glad that it looks like I'll be doing a lecture tour every year so I don't lose contact with uh, all the interesting people in the United States that I know. And I also like uh, being European correspondent for New Age magazine, which oh. is giving me an opportunity to travel around Europe at their expense doing articles for them. I've always wanted to see more of Europe, and now I finally got the chance to do it. Do you ever feel that you're kind of out of it, sort of being in Dublin as opposed to uh, in the United States? No, because I feel uh, traveling around, I am uh, picking up even more information than I would if I had stayed in the Bay Area, especially since I get back to the, I'm getting back to the Bay Area 
once or twice a year to touch bases here again and uh, pick up the bright new ideas that are going around here now. You've been listening to an interview with cult writer Robert Anton Wilson, born in 1932, died in 2007. A look at Amazon reveals that most, if not all, of his books remain in print. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 